calling all innovators. The World Economic Forum has opened up applications for its 2023 Technology Pioneers Community. Every year, the forum recognizes a limited number of companies as technology pioneers and incorporates them into its initiatives, activities, and events where they bring cutting-edge insights to critical issues facing the world. The 2023 application form is available right now at the top of weforum.org, but due by January 31st. Make sure you apply and spread the word. Ultimately, what you're really looking uh, to do is what I would call really a culture revolution. Welcome to Meet the Leader, the podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Eski Barcinas, the Chief Sustainability Officer at beverage giant Anheuser-Busch InBev. She'll talk about how a new approach to teaming is helping the world's largest brewer tackle everything from renewable energy, resilient farming, and more. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. I really think we live in a world where we need to remain optimistic and hopeful about the future, uh, but also bring a sense of urgency and, and impatience to what we're trying to drive. Is your team future fit? This is a key question for Esgi Barcinas, the Chief Sustainability Officer at AB InBev, the global brewer behind big brands like Budweiser and Corona. In a world disrupted by inflation, a warming planet, geopolitical conflict, and supply chain snarls, the company is constantly considering how to prepare itself for the next challenge, as well as the future farming, technology, logistics. For Esgi, being future fit means moving away from top-down management to a team of teams approach. Also known as holacracy, this approach empowers teams to move forward on big goals quickly and simultaneously without waiting on hierarchy and protocol. It builds agility, but depends on truly cross-functional teams and a willingness to get away from big business classics like multi-layered reporting structures. I should mention that for those willing to take the leap, being agile gets results. A recent study in McKinsey found that highly agile organizations delivered 30% gains in everything from customer satisfaction to employee engagement. They also move more quickly, five to 10 times more quickly, according to McKinsey. In fact, that's critical to make headway on urgent sustainability goals. Eski talked to me at the annual meeting in Davos last spring about why new organizational structures are so important to tackling climate change and to making sustainability everybody's business. She'll talk about all of this and what she hopes moves forward at the COP27 Climate Summit in November. But first, she'll talk a little bit about leaders and what they should be prioritizing right now. Impatient optimism. I really think we live in a world where we need to remain optimistic and hopeful about the future, but also bring a sense of urgency and, and impatience to what we're trying to drive. So it's a balance between that impatience and the optimism that we're bringing. Another piece I want to highlight is, is the double vision, right? I think the leaders around the world, as we're looking to tackle challenges that are much greater than ourselves, our families, societies, and stakeholders or companies, I think what we really need to see is having that belief system that a better future or a better world is possible. 
and not only seeing the world clearly as it is today with its realities, but also imagining what the future could look like and really try to close that gap and play a role in, in getting there. In your own work, how have you shown or deployed impatient optimism? I think this is incredibly important for internal engagement and collaboration across what I call team of teams, across so many different functions within a business, but also externally, really, again, articulating that authentic reason why we're pursuing you know, purposeful innovation, why we're looking at collaboration around the world to tackle some of these challenges. Explain what the team of teams are. Team of Teams is this operating model that we're building out at AB InBev where we are working across functions, you know, building cross-functional teams that are tackling shared challenges across the business, all the way from finance to supply chain to the people team to the commercial teams where we are really cascading targets to a group of people to tackle interdisciplinary challenges together and to really innovate the future together. So my favorite classes in business school have been managerial and organizational behavior classes. I really try to lean into our culture, which is a very target-driven analytical culture in, in how we think about our business and business initiatives. So try to bring that lens, but also the collaboration. And I think in building what I'm calling a team of teams, right? Not only working in hierarchies anymore, right? But really building out holocratic organizations where there's team of teams that are connected to each other and, and tackling these issues from their own perspective. For me, this has been really rewarding and, and we're still trying to codify what this means and to really operationalize it because I really think that we're onto something here that you know sustainability is not a siloed function that's operating on its own, that you know one team sets a vision and tries to rally up an entire company to drive, but actually the business functions themselves are actually identifying what is their, their role within that. And just to give an example, this year we've got eight different functions or departments that are carrying targets linked to ESG, which is tied to their bonus. So, you know, from finance to our people team, which is our HR function, to procurement, supply, logistics, you know, we are engaging entire company on these topics. And for me, it's been really rewarding. We're learning a lot from it. And I think this is just the beginning. There's so much more we could do in how we think about organizational design and how we actually craft the future together. Can you give a little bit of a, a description for people who don't know what holacracy is? In many companies, what you would see is the tracking and monitoring or the monthly performance reviews that take place where finance team gets together and they look their, they do their own monthly reviews. The procurement teams get, gets together and they do their own monthly reviews. This actually entails bringing together people from different functions that are working on the same projects and making sure that they're not only applying that sense of ownership that exists already in the company, but the sense of accountability, the shared accountability as well. You're no longer really putting sustainability as a responsibility in, in, in one team, but across the whole company. And leaders who maybe have not worked in a holocratic environment, they might be a little, people are scared of change. They, they might be a little resistant, reluctant. How can they become more comfortable with it, sort of get, get their toes into it? What do you suggest? My advice always to the teams that are just starting to do this is really focus on articulating how you're adding value to those teams, right? Because ultimately, you're not going to the five, six, seven, eight different teams and asking them to do something for you, right? You're there to help create value for them, to help make their jobs easier, to help make their products and their designs and processes more and more sustainable. So if you're really looking at it from a point of view of how can I help these teams be better, be more efficient, be more collaborative, be more future fit, then you're actually approaching it the right angle as opposed to 
well, we should all go do this because I said so. In order to tackle sustainability, we, we can't just use sort of one tool in our toolbox. And I think it's really interesting to take a holocratic approach as, as you're talking about. Do you think that's a surprise to people that, that there is maybe a tie to how we organize ourselves within companies, uh, whatever global organizations, <laughs> to what the results and the outputs are and how we're tackling these problems? Yeah. Do you think that's a surprise to people? To some people, yes, because ultimately what you're really looking to do is what consultants for years have called change management, what I would call really a culture revolution. I really think it speaks to the ethos of a company and how you're looking to redefine it for the future and, and how teams come together with that shared sense of purpose. I think over the last few years, many companies have been on this journey, especially on the supply chain part, right? Looking at it from supply security point of view, I think a few others have also started looking at it from a uh, an innovation angle, like for us, you know, what does the future of farming look like? The future of packaging, the future of logistics. We're asking these big questions to ourselves, but also to our supply chain partners. I think the next step is, okay, now how do I then empower my consumers with more choice, more information, really show up in the world and create those kind of more choices, more occasions for the consumers as well, right? So really looking into the, the commercial aspect of this as well, and not just the operational angle. And, and that really requires a whole new level of engagement within a business where, again, historically, there have been very function-specific engagements. Why don't we just talk about change <laughs> uh, for the climate? What is one that could make a real uh, turning point in your mind? I think scalable innovation. This is really a big one because even when you're looking to set new public commitments or a net zero ambition or vision, you know, there's certain pathways that you plan out for yourself and there is a piece of your supply chain or operations that you know how to tackle. And then there's other areas where you don't know the full answer, right? You don't know exactly how to get there, but you know the importance of innovation and identifying new partnerships and new supply chain partners that are going to come in and help you tackle. So scalable innovation is really a big one. And for us, about four years ago, we created a program called 100 Plus Accelerator that has accelerated 70 startups around the world in 20 plus countries. In its third year right now, we're wrapping up the third cohort. We've also invited Unilever, Coca-Cola, and Colgate-Palmolive to join us as four iconic companies to look at some of these sustainable innovation solutions that are out there that are going to come in and pilot their products in our operations or in our supply chains. And once you, at the end of that pilot, you find the results that can be scaled. Now there's your answer to the future, to that unknown that you're trying to close the gaps on. And what will also be really important? Are there capabilities that need to be built in order to sort of continue to close those gaps? I think in terms of the capabilities, you know, really having that broader sense of the world and the leadership that we bring in, always questioning this, this status quo. I am naturally a very curious person and I always tell my team this, you know, continue asking questions, right? We may not have all the answers, but as long as you're asking the right questions, you're going to find the right partner along the way, internally or externally, that are going to help you tackle and, and find solutions for the shared challenges that we have around the world. Is there a particular like piece of climate tech that gets you really excited and you're like, oh my gosh, that could make a real difference? There's a lot of solutions that we're piloting. You know, there's a renewable heat solution that we're looking to pilot and, and learn from. But also, you know, we're working with some of our uh, peers on eco-coolers and, and solutions there. We're working with our farmers and our uh, direct supply chain to bring in regenerative agricultural practices that are going to help in with that climate resilience, but also the mitigation as well. So there's many different angles. We just try to tackle them along our entire value chain. Yeah. 
I mean, one uh, example I always like to give is this uh, company called BankQ that is a blockchain-enabled technology per platform that operates basically over SMS. So you don't need a smartphone. Uh, you just need a, a cell phone where it increases the traceability and transparency of our value chain. So now for the first time in certain markets, we actually know where our barley comes from. And that farmer also has visibility around the amount of barley they sold to us, at what price they sold it to us. And they're being enabled and empowered with a digital financial identity because now they have sales records that they work for a global company like AB InBev and, and they now exist in our supply chain. Whereas before Beforehand, that visibility did not exist and did not make them bankable. So a huge opportunity for us to increase transparency and have access to that data, but also think of the, the communities around us and, and really empower them so that they can continue to bring the skills that they need to their own businesses. And that level of prosperity, because that helps build these businesses, yeah. it helps build families and towns and communities. How does that also help progress against climate change? I think this this really goes back to uh, about eight months ago when we refreshed our ESG strategy. We wanted to really lean in on on the category, and as as a category leader, you know, the world's leading brewer, we want to shift our approach from being the category leader to leading the category. And you know, in in our ESG efforts and strategic priorities that we've identified, what really came about were the three kind of what I would call signature themes for our business. So being inclusive, being natural, and being local. So what we're identifying and finding out is that that inclusivity really not only extends into our value chain, you know, think of the tens of thousands of smallholder farmers that we work directly with, or the six million retailers, the small, medium-sized enterprises, mom and pop shops around the world that sell our products, that inclusivity extends from the value chain to our product offerings through non-alk, low-alk options, affordable options, really creating that inclusive category. And once you start building that out, and then once you start thinking through how you work with nature instead of against it and really elevate the natural ingredients, the nature-based solutions, and bringing in that local view. We really believe that the future is local. So once you tie these three themes together, the inclusive, natural, and local, engaging with the farmers, engaging in local supply chains, revitalizing local economies, really play a big role in tackling climate change locally because you can't do this globally. What do you want to see happen before COP? I would love to see more urgency, but also that impatient optimism. What we really need to see is a growing recognition of the steps that have been taken so far and the solutions that have been identified and finding ways to scale those up, finding ways to, to bring in finance to some of those solutions. But at the same time, also openly talking about the gaps that we have around policies, enabling environments, the regulatory backbones that are needed in so many countries where you know we can continue to drive this agenda with our partners across the value chain. How do you think that the, there's, a, there's a buzz of the yeah. re recession coming? How will that impact efforts for climate progress? You know, the, the, the questions we would get in the first few months of the pandemic, both the champions and the skeptics of sustainability and climate change specifically, would come to me and my peers and other companies and really ask questions around, well, what does this mean? Is this going to put sustainability on the back burner and our company is going to shift their focus and attention because there is now a global pandemic? I think it's more or less the same now what we're seeing with the recession, with the food security, energy security challenges that are coming down the pipeline. Ultimately, what you're going to realize is that you need to continue to invest in local economies and local supply chains. And if we don't do that, we will be more susceptible to global shocks and disruptions to our supply chains and the systems that we created for ourselves. So I think if we continue to build for resilience and design for resilience, like we've learned in the last two years of the pandemic, I think we will come out of the inflation and the new economic environment as well, really better off because now we're 
really being challenged to ask ourselves the right questions. And what happens if uh, sort of people don't stay on the right course? You know, there will always be some that will stay the right course and will continue to advocate for the right policies and champion the right innovations and continue to identify the right partnerships that may be, you know, in some cases, very unlikely partnerships, right? And the 100 plus accelerator program that I talked about. These are startups and they're working with a global company with operations across 50 markets around the world with $50 billion in revenue. These are not likely partnerships, right? And we're going out and we're purposefully chasing these innovations to come in and, and bring us the learnings. That doesn't mean we're not working with the big suppliers as well. We are, because there's a different type of innovation and scalability that, that exists there. But I think some may not stay the course, others will. And you see this in, in governments as well. I think that the power that we have in, despite the local rootedness, we have that global reach. So we've actually been through this through the renewable electricity sourcing. Over 75% of our electricity is, is contracted to be sourced through renewable electricity. And when you go through those engagements and you're trying to increase local renewable capacity. So this is not about offsetting or uh, we're really investing in additional renewable capacity in the markets where we operate. And now you have a good understanding of what are the enabling conditions that make renewables competitive in the marketplace? Who are the suppliers and partners that are going to come in and help you do that? What is the would-be cost? You know, the should cost, the would-be cost of that renewable electricity? And what are the regulations that you need that are going to help you bring that electron, you know, to the grid? And you can take those learnings from one market to another. So I think there will always be opportunity to learn and to drive progress, even if some may be left behind a little bit earlier on, you could still bring them along. The role of business, it's changing a lot. What do you see is sort of like maybe one of the biggest and most stark changes, maybe even in, in the last five or 10 years? I think companies and business leaders are stepping up to shoulder this greater sense of leadership. And, you know, what we're seeing, and, and we've gone through this change in our organization as well, is we're starting to look outside our four walls, really deep into our supply chain, our ecosystems, and having that much broader view of the world and the role that we can all play within it. Um, and I think the dialogue is increasingly shifting away from sustainability and broader ESG being a supply security issue or a risk mitigation issue to innovation, to value creation, and really an enabler of that commercial vision that, that we're setting for ourselves. I think this is where you know, materiality really becomes very important. And what we've seen throughout the pandemic as well is the materiality of the environmental social governance issues becoming really a lot more accentuated, a lot more widely recognized and understood, because ultimately, you know, what we've done for years is design our systems and processes for efficiency. And then we woke up to a world where we saw that the, the importance of resilience and building for resilience and designing for resilience. So ultimately, I see sustainability as an ultimate brief for design. So I think, you know, as leaders are looking into this for them to stay authentic and to build programs that are long term and sustainable, they really need to take into account the materiality of why they do what they do, why it matters to, to their business, their stakeholders. And that point of entry, I think, is always very, very important. Uh, while you've been at ABMV, how have you evolved as a leader? I've been a lot more resilient than I than I thought I, I was. So, you know, learning that over time. And I think this comes with the nature of the profession as well, right? When you're when you're driving a sustainability agenda and, and you need to educate, inspire, inform people. So I think I think that's one. And showing to the teams that you can be part of the change that you want to see, right? So every new recruit that comes in through business school or lateral hires externally. They always ask us, you know, what are you doing in sustainability? They always want to find out. They always want to play a role. But they also should feel empowered that they could be part of that change. So I think that's the one piece that, you know, we continue to, to deliver the messages on. And, and for me, I think 
I see myself playing that that role very uniquely in my in my leadership style and in the inclusivity that we bring in, the collaboration, how we invite others to come and be part of the solution and really help lead this agenda together. When it comes to organizational change, that uh, it's an evolution, right? Is there something that you changed your mind and you uh, made a new plan, you pivoted? Pivoting and, and taking kind of different routes to the ultimate, the same ultimate outcome is definitely part of the job description, I would say. It's a couple of things, right? One is you can look at something from an operational angle and try to solve for a regulatory risk, a physical risk, a reputational risk, and that's how you design your programs and initiatives. But you can also look at things from a commercial angle and say, this is increasingly what the consumers want to see, or this is what's important for our retailer partners, and here's how we show up in the world on shelf, you know, and and the shopper insights or the consumer insights that we need that are going to drive those. So for me, I think the, the, the biggest kind of learnings that we've had is to continue to listen, that active listening of the partners externally and entire stakeholder groups, be it, be it the consumers, be it the customers for us or, or supply chain partners. And how can any leader make sure that they are actively reaching out, talking, collaborating with these people? For instance, the CEO of Yara uh, prompts his team and also asks the same question of himself. How many meetings did you have outside the organization this mm -hmm. week, this month? You know, uh, to sort of say, hey, are, if we're really going to partner with other people, we need to start talking to other people. Uh, yeah. Are there uh, sort of uh, uh, habits, uh, things like that, that you guys are doing to sort of uh, build that uh, collaboration, that partnership? Yeah, absolutely. And increasingly more so. So I've been with the company nine years now. And when I first joined, the, the function was within the corporate affairs team and gave me a lot of ability to learn about the industry and what we stand for and the cultural heritage and kind of the operational excellence. Then we moved sustainability under procurement. So I would report into our chief procurement sustainability officer, where again, it gave us a lot of ability to influence our supply chain partners, really get into strategic dialogues more so than a transactional cost related uh, discussion and, and negotiation with the, with the suppliers. To now, you know, last year when we had a new CEO come in, our, our new CEO, Michelle Duqueris, elevating the position and creating a uh, chief sustainability officer position, a fully dedicated CSO position that reports into him, you know, we've been through that journey. And in that journey, we've learn how we can tackle these things and how we can engage the organization. So I think for me, that has been a really big signal to the whole company that this is really important for us. But again, you know, going back to our target driven culture and, and how we think about the targets and the, the strategic priorities for the sustainability team and the broader team of teams around the world, including our finance team, for example, we have really now taken on more of a public leadership role in a few big areas where we think that, you know, we've got a lot of learnings and a lot of local insights that we can share with the world. And beyond that, you know, looking into some of the regulatory and reporting frameworks that are also coming out and having a voice in those discussions as well as the industry standards are being set. Because again, I think I work in such an industry where we really know the nuts and bolts of our business because of the local supply chains and how close we are, how deeply rooted we are in those local supply chains that I think we are no longer shy about leveraging those learnings and insights and, and trying to bring them to global discussions or industry discussions as well to lead agenda setting dialogues. Did you think uh, when you were starting your career that this would be your job? <laughs> um, I don't, I don't think so. I, you know, it's a, it's a great question. I was a big uh, math and science student in, in high school. So I ended up getting a double major in engineering. So I did electrical and biomedical engineering. And despite my professors asking me to stay on for a master's and PhD, I wanted to see the impact of my work in the world and went on to get a master's in environmental health and then did a number of years in the public sector in international development and still felt that 
you know, the impact of my work. I was not seeing immediately, went back to school, got my MBA and found myself at ABI about nine years ago. And I feel incredibly fortunate, privileged, humble to have found this early in my career and to also have been part of the journey that we've been on as a, as a company in how we build our understanding and appreciation for sustainability and how we're not working on building a sustainability strategy, but a business strategy that is more sustainable. So for me now, for the first time, I see the impact of my work and at scale around the world and, and, and that vision and, and how we can bring it to life. Is there a book you recommend? I am uh, currently reading this book called Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. It's a really interesting book because it argues that humans are wired to be kind. And, and I'd like to think that, you know, I've got two little kids, a three and a seven year, seven year old. And I'd like to believe that, you know, the natural state of, of humanity is not is not selfishness. I think, you know, it may seem a radical idea, but I think it's, it's quite refreshing to be thinking of humankind as kind. And yeah, I think there is a lot of power in positive thinking, especially again in the, in the state of the world that we live in today. So I encourage everyone to read and I find it very refreshing so far. Is there a, a piece of advice that you would give to yourself? And you haven't been working in sustainability your entire career, mm -hmm. but a good chunk of it, right? What would you give, uh, what advice would you give to yourself sort of at the beginning of that journey? Be bolder. Yeah. I think we need to move faster on people, products, markets. You know, there's a lot happening in the space right now and, and things are moving really fast. So uh, it's, it's time to be bold. That was Etki Barcenas. Thanks to her and thanks so much to you for listening. A transcript of this episode and my colleagues' episodes, Radio Davos and the Book Club podcast, is available at wef.ch slash podcasts. If you like this conversation, check out an episode with Volvo Group's Lars Stankvist from last year. He talked to me about how moving away from the control tower approach of management was critical for engineers who need to move quickly and tackle the biggest challenge of their careers, decarbonizing transport. This episode of Meet the Leader was presented and produced by me, with Juan Toran as studio engineer, Jerry Johansson as editor, and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>